me ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And I believe we'll be closing out the series that went about twice as long as I expected, but this series on um, plucking out the weeds in the garden of everyday life. But even though we're just finishing up, I believe what we're going to share this morning, in many ways, touches the most of our everyday lives, the most hours in our day. So let's be thinking about work. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. And I'll just tell you this before we read. I am, I am having a hard time keeping my thoughts together, much more than normal. I'm not quite sure. I was sick earlier this week. And, uh, and then, of course, I'm like a human, so all it takes is like one hour off one morning and I can't think anymore. Um, so I would just ask that you would pray the Lord would help me to uh, not be unprofitable to us this morning. Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Lord, we come before you. We want to ask you that you would please come in our weakness and speak to us in your strength. We, Lord, we even rejoice in our weakness, knowing that the strength of Christ abides us on us, because when we are weak, then we're strong. Lord, it's my prayer that I and all of my brothers and sisters at Emmanuel would fellowship with you more. And what greater gain could be made than to fellowship with you all the waking hours of our work? Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name, and especially uh, do this accompanying us with a deep sense and awareness of your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to us this morning about learning to fellowship with God in our work. Each of us have work to do. Students uh, do hours and hours of homework. Families uh, have housework. Employees have jobs, tasks, assignments, reports, projects, deadlines. Each of us, young and old, are workers. And some of us work more with our hands, some of us work more with our heads, some of us work with both. But young and old, uh, we have work to do. And I want to speak to you about learning to fellowship with God in your work. Now, a number of years ago, I was in a small group gathering or gospel community group gathering at Emmanuel, and there was about 12 or 15 people uh, gathered in a living room of our, our guests. Some of you are here and uh, who were at that time. And I remember on this particular 
I don't remember what it was, Wednesday evening probably, uh, asking the group, uh, how's your walk with God going? How's your walk with God going? Open-ended question, how's your walk with God going? And uh, we were proceeded to answer the question. I think everyone in the whole circle of people, 12 or 15 people, answered the question, how's your walk with God going? And if my memory serves, every single person around that circle answered the question in terms of how they were doing in terms of regular Bible reading and prayer. So I haven't been reading my Bible much, but I have been praying, have been praying, but haven't been reading my Bible, you know, or I'm reading lots of scripture, or trying to get back on the horse with reading my Bible. And, and when I asked the open-ended question, how's your walk with God? Everyone answered in terms of something that occupies 15 minutes to an hour, if you're Martin Luther, like three hours of your day, but I don't know if there's too many Martin Luthers here this morning. But anyway, we're talking about, even at the highest end, we're talking, you know, roughly around the 24th of your day. And I don't want to say a single word in this sermon to devalue your commitment or my commitment to spending time in the word and in prayer. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119, verse 105. And I don't want to get rid of the idea that we should get alone where no one's looking and close the door and pray on a regular basis. It was Jesus who said, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So private prayer, Bible intake, both vital. And still it struck me, as I was sitting with that group of believers who I love, uh, that no one mentioned the thing that they did for 40 or 50 or 60, or if you're in a particularly stressful situation, more hours a week. And I fear that this way of looking at our walk with God, despite actually sounding spiritual, because you're talking about the word and prayer, what could be more spiritual than that? This way of talking about our walk with God is actually extremely secular. You see, the secular world is interested in confining God to the margins. The secular world is eager to push God to the periphery. He can't have a place in government. He can't have a place in education. He can't have a place in public discourse. But if you want to have God in your private religion, you're good to go. And how fascinating that a group of Christians, when they're alone with other Christians, would answer the question, how's your walk with God going, in a way so deeply shaped by secularism. It's almost like we'd been cowed in and didn't even notice. How's your walk with God? Well, let me answer you the way a good secularist would want me to answer. My private, personal relationship with God is going fine. Now, again, I don't want to say a single word to diminish or degrade Bible reading and prayer. I used to have a friend who'd say to me, the facts are, Ryan, if I don't read my Bible every day, I'm just a mean person. And, and there, there is a sense in which that, that core commitment to the Bible and to prayer is often the root of faithfulness everywhere else. But it is totally wrong thinking 
And it's totally unbiblical thinking to think of our walk with God as diminished to our devotions rather than seeing our walk with God as expanding into all of life, and I would even add this morning, especially our work. Our work. Now, um, the saddest part of this reality is it misses out on the fact that God doesn't want to commune with you for 20 minutes a day. God wants to fellowship with you every waking minute of your life. And if you've had a few good dreams lately, maybe even beyond that. But he, he always wants to be fellowshipping with his people. He wants to commune with them at the photocopier and at the altar of the Excel spreadsheet and when wiping down the toilet bowl and when firing the problem employee. God wants to be with his people. He wants to fellowship with them. He wants to commune with them. He wants to be near them. I will be with you always wasn't, I promise to supercharge your battery for 20 minutes a day. I will be with you always means I want to walk with you through the rough and tumble of everyday life. R.C. Sproul used to speak of all the Christian life being quorum Deo, which is a fancy Latin way of saying before the face of God. All of Christian life is to be a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. And how, how are we selling ourselves short in our Christian lives and Christian experience if we're not walking moment by moment at work in communion and fellowship with God. And so uh, we've been looking at everyday life. That's what this passage is out about. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that look like, Paul? And it doesn't look like getting away from everyday life. He immediately begins to spell it out in speaking about the relationship between wives and husbands. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. And then the relationships of parents to children. And now he comes to the relationship between workers and employees, between uh, management and union, or in the common work experience of his day, slaves and masters. Now, I'm eager to get into the subject of communing with God at work and how to increase that, but I can't just move past uh, the mention here of slavery in the New Testament. And I, I want to say, I'm going to say uh, a disappointing amount about slavery. I've gone back and forth. At one point, I had a whole sermon heading about slavery before this sermon, and then it got reduced to three pages, and now we're sitting at about a paragraph. So uh, we're not going to get into that vital subject. It's important, but I think it's in the spirit of the text to really address where you work and not all of the contingencies of slavery over the last 2,000 years. As important as those are, and I'm happy to talk after the service with anyone who wants to talk about them, but I, I will just say a brief, brief word about slavery. The reason I'm gonna deal with the topic of slavery briefly is not because it's not an important subject. The reason I'm gonna deal with slavery briefly is because it's really not the subject of this passage. You might say, how can you say it's not the subject of the passage? The passage says bond servants, and then it says masters. Clearly this is what's talking about. Well, actually what's going on is that Paul is just speaking to the normal average work experience in the Roman culture of the day. 
Not everyone in that church in Ephesus was married, but he speaks to husbands and wives. Uh, not everyone in the church in Rome was a father or a child, but they generally were, and so he speaks in that generalities. And the facts are that generally, the employment relationship in Rome, the basic import employment relationship in the Roman Empire was not that you got hired for a job, is that you were either a slave or you were a master. The Roman Empire is estimated at this time, don't let this number get lost on you, the Roman Empire at this time is estimated to have had 60 million slaves. And uh, slavery came from all kinds of different sources. It wasn't simply like the American slave trade where you had kidnapping in Africa, man-stealing, the Bible would call it, trafficking human souls. In the Roman slave trade, you also had uh, people coming into slavery because they'd gotten into debt. You had people coming into slavery because they'd been taken captive in a war. You had people coming into slavery because they were born into slavery. You had massive amounts of ways people came into slavery. Interestingly, Roman slavery was often over by the time you were 30. If you were able to pay off your debts or to amass some money, you were able to get out of slavery. But, but either way, slavery was just the way people worked in the Roman Empire. And slavery could really span all uh, different kinds of social strata. So there were, uh, there were uh, workers, uh, physical laborers who were slaves, but there were also doctors and lawyers and teachers who were slaves. So slavery was not confined to the plantation or, or confined just to the farm, but was really society-wide and was the basic working relationship in the Roman Empire. So when Paul goes to speak about your daily work, he, he just starts here with slaves and masters. And so what I want to do uh, this morning is that we, we could spend, and it would be profitable to think about the differences between American slavery and Roman slavery. And it would be uh, amazing also to talk about the way the Bible uh, regulates slavery but never affirms it or celebrates it. Just a quick little note, very fascinating here. You'll remember in the marriage passage, why is marriage so important? Christ in the church. Why is parenting so important? The com Ten Commandments. Why is slavery so important? Crickets. No scriptural backing, not based in anything in creation. Paul's not speaking to something that must be perpetuated. He's not speaking that to God bless you. And uh, he's not speaking to, uh, he's not speaking to um, that kind of a situation at all. Rather, he, he's, he's recognizing an imperfect system that's everywhere and it's where people work. And so in order to speak to the Christians about how they ought to be faithful in their work, he speaks to slaves and masters. And of course, I think the easiest and I hope uh, clearest application for us is the application then to owners and employees, to management and to union, to bosses and those who are working for them. What, what Paul is trying to get, a, what, get across to us is the way we work as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to speak to you about fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I'll just mention this before I move on from slavery. If... Roman slaves, and some had very good situations in Roman slavery, some had very horrendous situations in Roman slavery. 
But if Paul's assumption is that a Roman slave can spend their days fellowshipping with God, you can too. I know some of you got bad jobs. But if in these circumstances, greater fellowship with God was possible, then it's possible in all the circumstances imaginable in this room. So let me give you some attitudes that will help you to fellowship with God at work. Let me give you some attitudes that will help you to fellowship with God at work. The first thing we need to do if we're gonna fellowship with God at work is we need to think of our bosses more highly. We need to think of our bosses more highly. I notice there in uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse nine, bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, I don't know how much of a Bible reader every single person in this room is, but if you, if you become much of a Bible reader, fear and trembling is gonna go off in your mind. That's gonna be something you hear on a regular basis. And, and, and it's, it's interesting because it's a phrase that's deeply associated with the primary attitude we're supposed to have towards God himself. It's, it's God and his work in us and in the world that is to generate a reverence and an awe, a, a fear and a trembling in our lives. So in Psalm 2, when there's all these rebellious kings shaking their fists at God, the way he finally addresses them is he says to me at the end of the Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Or many of you are probably familiar with Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure, or, or think about the, what, the way Isaiah speaks about God's word. He, he, he lifts up God as the mighty creator, and then he speaks to God's people about God's word, and listen to what he says. He says, all these things my hand has made. Everything has been made by me. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Now, we all know that there's something good and right happening in our souls when a particular worship song or a passage of scripture or a sermon brings into our soul a sense of fear and trembling. What we don't know is when that pimply-faced 17-year-old girl who just became our boss at Chick-fil-A says, go make two frozen lemonades now, it's supposed to incite the same kind of feeling. That's what's not clear. That's not what's clear. When you find that the people you work with remind you of the characters from The Office, you're not thinking, I ought to feel fear and trembling at Michael's words. That's the breakdown. That's the breakdown. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying the attitude in your soul towards your boss's word ought to be one of reverence. It ought to be one of where I recognize that God's representative in my life, the one who's gonna shape what I do with my fingers, my time, even my heart attitude, that one just spoke to me and I need to get busy doing. It's striking 
how much the will of God and the will of your boss are equated in this passage. And, and remember, the masters, you know, we, we might say with the husbands and wives stuff that, oh, these are Christian husbands, Christian wives, parents and children, oh, these are Christian parents, Christian children. No, no, the slave-master relationship, you didn't know who your master was. They might be a believer, they might not be a believer, and yet they've been ordained by God in this context to lead you. And Paul makes a striking link between their will and the will of God. And so you read, if you just read the passage, you'll notice this. Uh, first of all, it says that bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So the reverence you're to give to your boss is the reverence that you would give to Christ. Now, first reaction that happens in our soul, my boss does not deserve. You, if you knew my boss, you would know. They do not deserve the reverence Christ deserves. But here's the thing, all these Christian ethics, it's all about giving to people what they don't deserve. It's, it's all heart of the gospel ethics. The gospel is giving you what you don't deserve. Christian ethics is giving to others what they don't deserve. And so you see the fear and trembling towards your boss is the fear and trembling that you have towards Christ. And then if you look on, this one strikes me uh, very, very strongly. Notice the context of verse five, obey your earthly masters. So that's the context. I'm supposed to do what they say, obey your earthly masters. And I'm not supposed to do it, verse six, by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants doing the will of God from the heart. Now, when I'm doing that will of God from the heart, which will am I doing? I'm doing what my boss said. What my boss said there is the will of God from the heart. That's what Paul is speaking about. And we've said this a thousand times, but we have to say it again. God is a God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he delegates his authority throughout the earth. That's how he works in the world. And so we have uh, structures of authority and submission throughout the world. So we are to obey our government. Why? Because they are ministers of God. Yeah, even this government. We, we are to obey our parents. Why? Because they were placed over us by God. And we are to obey our bosses, why? Because they were placed over us by God. Now I recognize that in some working contexts, you're actually hired to argue with your boss. You know, I'm certainly glad there are teams of doctors that don't just always agree with what the first person says, but there's a dialogue to get the best decision. But in every work situation, there's eventually someone where the buck stops. There's someone who makes the last call. And when that person makes the call, it's our responsibility to carry it out fully, completely, cheerfully, aggressively, eagerly, and with a whole heart as part of our reverence and our worship towards God. So the first thing you want to do, if you want a fellowship with God, is to recognize the authority he's delegated to your boss or the owner of your company. And when you do that, the commands you're getting and even the seemingly inane tasks you are sometimes assigned become places where you can walk with God because you're actually following 
his will for your life in, your, in these circumstances. It's liberating. The other thing we must do if we're going to enjoy fellowship with God as work is we're going to need to think less about our bosses. First thing we need to do if we're going to fellowship with God at work is we need to think more about our bosses. Second thing is you need to think less about your bosses. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, says this in an interesting way. No, no, just see if you notice it when I read just the first few verses. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. There's something undermining about that. There's an acknowledgement, not ultimate masters. There's kings, but then there's the king of kings. And it's amazing. All you got to do to give someone on a power trip in this life is like give them a different colored apron at McDonald's. I mean, it doesn't take a lot for someone to think there's something special in this world. Here's a new brightly colored polyester uniform that's different than all the other polyester uniforms. And all of a sudden this person's walking around like they're the king of the castle. And we are told that we're to recognize that this person who has real authority over me does not have ultimate authority over me. They might be a king, but they're not the king of kings. And this is important because sometimes we can allow our bosses to have too big a places, too big a place in our hearts. Even in an unhealthy work environment, we can be concerned too much with their approval too discouraged by their disapproval. And I'm not saying we shouldn't always work hard to please our bosses. And whatever kind of criticism they give us, we should do our best to implement and see what truth is there. But let's face it, bosses are sinners too. And there are bosses who cannot be satisfied. There are bosses who are hot one minute and cold the next. In the New Testament, we hear of masters who are kind and gentle and others who are harsh and abusive. So we are called to obey what our bosses call us to do, but we cannot get our sense of worth, our success success or failure from what our bosses think of us. We must work, we must be wise. I'm always afraid of saying this kind of thing because it's often like the worst employee goes, that's right, I don't need to think about what my boss thinks. No, you just need to go back to the first point and stay there this morning, okay? But there are many who their spiritual life is wrecked by what people think of them at work, by whether or not their boss is happy. People have heart attacks because they can never please their bosses. Some of us have been fired from a job, and sometimes we deserved it. Of course, we should repent of that, but sometimes it just wasn't a good fit. We did not have the right competencies or opportunities. When we hear that we have failed, it can be heartbreaking, but remember, the most important thing about you hasn't changed if you're let go from a job. The crucified king is still your king. You are a child of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a worker in his vineyard. You're a saved son of the heavenly king. I remember an old baseball movie. I tried to look it up last night and see if I could find it, but some old baseball movie. And there's this old grizzled baseball manager and he's just had to fire one of the young kids from the team and he's musing and waxing philosophical 
after having to fire this young kid from the team. And he says, when I cut them from the team, they think I tell them they're failing at life. When really all I'm saying is you can't play baseball. And it's a good reminder. Our earthly masters are just that. They are earthly masters. And there are many people who've been displeasing to an earthly master who on the last day will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Third, if you want to commune with God, you've got to think about the eyes of God more than the eyes of men. If you want to commune with God at work throughout the day, you need to think more about the eyes of God than the eyes of men. And I'm just going to say this because it popped into my head. There's many of you who in your professions are wondering, will I be faithful when that crucible moment comes? You know, to the teacher, will I resist saying the thing I'm convinced I shouldn't say? Or to the doctor, will I, re- will I be faithful not to perform that procedure I know I shouldn't perform? And I'll just say to you, the, the strength you'll need in that moment is cultivated by a, little million, a million little moments of just living for the eyes of God, not the eyes of men. So if you want to commune with God, you've got to think about the eyes of God more than the eyes of men. Now, what Paul's doing here in this passage is he's going after the sin of hypocrisy, isn't he? He's going after the sin of hypocrisy. You can see that there in the passage. It says that we are to be serving our bosses not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And this kind of stuff happens in work all the time. Yeah, everybody can figure out a way to do as little as possible. Now, sometimes it's obvious when people are doing as little as possible. You've heard about the preacher. He was invisible six days a week and incomprehensible on the seventh. Anyway, I think that's funnier than you got. I think that's actually a funny joke. But anyway, that's just me. So anyway, um, but sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes people are staring at their screens. It looks like they're doing data analytics. Really, they're playing solitaire. There's lots of ways to... There's lots of ways to look like you're performing, to look like you're doing your best, when really you're just doing the bare minimum. So the boss is in the room, you're busy. The boss moves, you're talking. And what Paul is doing, here's the communion of God piece, is he's saying when your boss's eyes aren't on you, God's eyes are always on you. One of the reasons many of us experience so little fellowship with God at work is because we're not working for him. We're working for the eyes of our supervisor and we're doing just enough to please people. And then once just enough is done, we cram in whatever selfishness we can. Games, scrolling, all on company time. And let me speak to you students, because as a student, it can be easy to do this and not really get convicted about it. But here's the idea. If, 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 if all you do is the bare minimum of your schoolwork, 
and you just play and play and play or get distracted and distracted as much as you can, you will eventually get a degree. But you might be dangerous. You might be dangerous. I love the proverb. I've drilled this into my kids' heads. I need to drill it in my own head. He who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. That is, when we do our jobs badly, we become destroyers. You know, there's one guy who intentionally blows up a bridge, but then there's an engineer who never focuses while he's drawing the bridge. And 30 years later, it comes down. He who is slack in his work is a brother, same results to him who destroys. And so we want to be people who are aware of the face of God in our work. And we need to be aware, all work is a loving of your neighbor. This was a great rediscovery of the Reformation, that the work was a love of your neighbor. You might think, my work seals meaningless. I just throw boxes on trucks all day long. Just box, truck, box, truck. Yes, but you do that, and whatever I want in the world arrives at my house in 24 hours. Thank you! That's amazing! And if you don't do that, my kids don't get their Christmas presents. <laughs> all of our work is like that. We're all part of this massive system beyond anything else. If, if you're on the spot, if my doctor is like locked in and they notice something, the sloppy person wouldn't have noticed. I live longer. Okay? So our work being done before the, the presence of God in the face of God, and not just so that others notice it, is a, is a loving your neighbor piece. So you often people will be like, are you doing any ministry? Are you doing any ministry? You're like, yes, I go to work nine to five, and nobody gets poisoned. Okay, if you've ever had food poisoning, you know, sometimes you pull up to a restaurant, and you're like, the person serves you that food, and you're like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. It's not gonna, and then, and then you're right. That's even, that's even worse. And you're like, somebody didn't wash their hands. Somebody didn't make sure the freezer worked. And it all seems so not a big deal. So just work. But every one of us is involved in loving our neighbors by doing our work before the face of God. I can't move past without saying this. This is just fascinating to me. Can you see something here? I wanted to take you back to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? That's in Matthew. We're going to get back there in a couple decades. And uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus highlights three religious activities. Prayer, fasting, and giving. And he says, don't do them to be noticed by others. Remember what I'm talking about? And he says, if you do them before others, you've already received your reward. What's fascinating to me is Paul is using the exact same logic here, but not in the religious realm, in the work realm. Don't go to work and be a Pharisee. Don't go to work and be a hypocrite. If you impress your boss, you might get 500 company points to spend on the company website to buy something you don't really want. But you won't impress God. Last thing I'll give you to encourage your fellowship with God at work is this. Remember the reward of heaven. 
remember the reward of heaven. Now you might be thinking, you haven't dealt with masters. I will here. The reward of heaven is the main motivator for them too. I wanna actually, I'm gonna show you this in the passage, but I actually wanna start by stating the doctrine I'm talking about. I wanna start by stating the doctrine I'm talking about. And I wanna state it by just reading you Article 20 of uh, our own doctrinal statement, our church's doctrinal statement. It's the judgment. And it says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ. When everyone shall receive according to his deeds, the wicked shall go into everlasting punishment, the righteous into everlasting life. So the Bible consistently teaches that there will be a judgment, and in that judgment we will receive either life everlasting or punishment everlasting based on the works we have done here on earth. Jesus said this in John 5, 22, an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's what we have here in Ephesians 6. To the slaves, Paul says they are to serve the Lord from the heart. And then notice this. He says in verse 8, they're to serve the Lord from the heart, knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. God will repay us eternally for our works. If we've done good, we will receive good. What this means is made even clearer in the parallel passage in Colossians. Sometimes people ask me, what's a good commentary? on different books of the Bible. Best commentary on Romans in the book of the Bible? In the, in the world, Galatians. Best commentary on Ephesians in the Bible? Colossians. They're parallel books, so you'll see the same things and you get a little mutual understanding by comparing them. So Colossians, speaking to slaves and masters, says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. See the same idea? Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord is not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. The inheritance, of course, is speaking about our inheritance of heaven. If you work heartily unto the Lord, you will receive the inheritance of heaven from the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see it there, I trust, okay? I've, I've pointed out to you in our doctrinal statement, we don't have some obscure, idiosyncratic doctrinal statement. You see it there in Jesus' words. You see it here in the passage we're dealing with. We will receive an eternity based on what we've done in this life. If we've done good, the inheritance of heaven will be our reward. If we give ourselves a wrongdoing, we will be paid back for the wrong we have done. This is the same thing Jesus spoke about in Matthew 25 when he spoke about some people went to him in prison and served him when he was in need and some people didn't. And he says to those who didn't, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I wanted to make sure that doctrine was clear. And I wanted to say it clearly because it, it actually often confuses people 
and it actually especially confuses evangelical Christians. They say, but aren't we saved by grace and not by works? Did anyone have that thought while I was reading that? No, you're all too theologically sophisticated. Thank you, Brother Jimmy, for your honesty. Aren't we saved by grace and not by works? Aren't we saved by what Jesus has done and not what we do? Listen, absolutely. We are saved by the finished work of Jesus and not what we've done not our works at all. We're saved by casting ourselves on Jesus' mercy and by putting our faith in him alone and we're saved by faith alone. Amen? And here's what the reformers saw that was so critical. That, the, that when you're saved by faith alone, that faith is never alone it always results in good works. And those good works don't pile up till they're enough to save you, but they are real and significant so that on the last day they will be seen and you will be rewarded for them. That order is critical. You mess up that order, you'll drown yourself in guilt. I'm not talking about working hard enough to get into heaven. I'm talking about believing desperately casting yourself on God's mercy, and here's my promise, if you do that, you can't not be changed. You will be changed. And you will become a person of good works. By grace, you've been saved. But what happens when you're saved by grace? God created us for good works. Okay, so the point I'm trying to make here is that if you are saved, it will transform what you do at work. And if it doesn't, it will result in eternal destruction. And if it does, how's this for grace? The God who owes you nothing will reward you. For every burger you flipped, and data you processed, and bone you set, and legal wrong you rectified, he will reward you with the inheritance of heaven. And this has effects on both slaves and masters, and I'll, I'll spell them out a little bit and then I'll, I'll sit down. For the slaves, it's amazing comfort. Because you gotta imagine, let's just assume that most of these slaves didn't get the job they wanted. They weren't getting to do something they found meaningful and important for themselves personally. This is how we choose jobs now. It's gonna drive me into poverty, but I have a passion for it. You follow that one. I'll be here for you when you're done. Anyway, um, <clears throat> we, we need to recognize that for slaves who often would have felt like they were toiling to pursue someone else's dreams, not doing something they found personally rewarding, here's God saying, I'll reward you. And they're like, I don't get paid enough to put up with this stuff. I'll pay you back. How can I put up with this one more day longer? Because it's gonna, your sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to you on the last day. Some of you have different careers. Your 401k hasn't followed you around from one job to the next. God's reward will follow you around. 
from one job to the next. Whatever you've invested in the different careers, different jobs, whatever you've offered to the Lord, it will all be paid back to you at the resurrection of the just. And then to masters, they listen, there's a tendency in masters, it's just a human tendency, it's a sinful human tendency, but once you own something, you know, there's a tendency to get too big for your britches. There's such a thing as a God complex. And what's God say? He says, masters, you've got a master. And you've got to face him. So you can't be pushing around your employees. You can't be withholding their wages. You can't be unfair, unjust. You are not an autonomous master. You're a master who's going to answer to the master of masters. But we probably need to say more than that too because often we make it sound like being a master or a boss or an employer is just super awesome. When the people I know uh, who own things or run things have a lot of stress. I was sitting in the DMV the other day and I, I couldn't help, this woman was talking on the phone right beside me and so I heard what she said. I hope she's not here. But she was sad. She was just, she was talking about curling up into a ball and weeping because she couldn't find employees for her company. She was just vexed by all the stress. I walked into a restaurant that I go to regularly down here and I said, I, I can't get good work. I can't get people who, I, I get people who come to work for me, they stand around and they, they don't ex only expect me to pay them, they want me to loan them money. I can't get good work. And to masters, I would say this, after all the headaches and all the is it worth it to keep these people employed, you will be rewarded. All the headaches, you will be rewarded. So, I don't know how this is landing on you, but what stands out to me is the possibility of dozens of hours of fellowship with God every week. And that's what I want. And that's what I want for you. So think more about your boss. Think less about your boss. Uh, think less about people and more about pleasing God and think more about heaven because heaven is literally on the line at work. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for this people, this congregation, the blood you shed to gather them, the spirit you give to empower them. And we pray, Lord God, that each of us would repent of our unfaithfulness at work, experience your grace and your cleansing and by your spirit's empowerment experience more fellowship with you in our work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.